Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Today's guest is Sarah Powell, who is the Global Compliance Council Director, third-party ABC Compliance at Pearson. As you can tell from that, she's also my colleague at Pearson. There are a lot of remarkable things about Sarah, but the reason I wanted to have her join me is her constant commitment to improving everything she does, whether it's her work, her country, you'll hear her accent, she's from South Africa, for new moms, for women everywhere. It's not just me that said that, it is by Diligent, who recognized her as part of their Modern Governance 100. She's part of the Compliance Week Advisory Board, and she is a regular speaker about global anti-corruption work. It's Mary recently spoke with one of her colleagues at Tata Communications about your day ones that you meet at a company that become your friends and the people you trust the most. And I was like, this is perfect timing to talk with Sarah. So Sarah, thank you for being here and thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Lisa, for that wonderful introduction. I want to frame it and put it on my wall. <laughs> that made my heart warm. Thank you. Thank you for having me and just yeah, for the opportunity to share this time with you. I really appreciate it. So since I started three years ago and we talked about how you were a great onboarder, a lot has changed for you. As we mentioned, you got married, you're a mom to the most adorable little Izzy, and you moved right at the beginning of COVID back to South Africa from the UK. Can you give us a bit of an update of, about how that has impacted you, particularly in your role as an ethics and compliance professional? Thank you, Lisa. Yeah, so COVID in South Africa was tough. It was also tough moving. I lived in the UK for six years before I, I moved back, and we moved to a small sort of coastal town in the Eastern Cape. And it was a hugely tough transition. We had extremely strict COVID regulations. So guys, alcohol was banned. Could not buy, consume, transport alcohol. <laughs> we had set times that we were allowed outside of our house for exercise. So it would be between 9 and 10 in the morning, for example, and then again at 4 and 5 in the afternoon. A lot of things were not sold in the shop, so they stipulated what type of clothing could be sold, they stipulated what type of food and beverages could be sold. And the idea behind that was to limit people kind of leisure shopping. We obviously had very strict curfews, so it was just, it was a really tough experience. But I think when I tie it back to just work and compliance, the first thing I want to say is becoming a parent, I had no idea. And honestly, any parent that survived COVID is an absolute hero hands down just I have so much respect I really do because I cannot imagine what it must have been like dealing with a pandemic trying to protect little ones your family's health and then on top of that balancing work and family life so honestly I think that's been a, a big sort of eye-opener for me becoming a, <laughs> a mom and then just in compliance yeah it really highlighted to me how important our roles are South Africa unfortunately we live in quite a corrupt environment and what happens in a pandemic is that you need money available. You've got emergency medical supplies to procure. You've got to equip your hospitals. You've got to perhaps hire and train staff. You need to pay grants and help unemployed people. In South Africa, you need to deliver food parcels. Our schools have feeding schemes every day that is sometimes the only meal a child has for that day, and they rely on that food. And when you shut all that off, you're left with, with a population that's 
extremely vulnerable. And when the money has been spent unwisely or in a corrupt way before the pandemic even started, you're left in a very difficult situation. And that was one of the one of the primary concerns that I had, at least in the beginning, is thinking how we're going to support all of these South Africans that really rely on day to day is honestly a struggle for for survival. And uh, yeah, so it brought home the value of our roles. And first of all, I think preventative. So our jobs are making sure that we do good by investors, our customers, our learners, our employees, and if we're public servants, by the public. Safeguarding our resources, making sure that we're economically viable and we can stay afloat, and really protecting us for events when something does go wrong, that we're in a great position. And the other thing is, and I'm sure also I think any compliance professional really struggles with this, is the concept of just being a pain. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it, but I feel really badly when people reach out to me and they need something done and I ask them a hundred questions and then I go back and ask them some more questions. And I say, please fill in a form, please go through this process, please get this done. And often you look at yourself as a hamper and a, like a, a hindrance to efficiency and to, to getting things done quickly, simply, effectively. And I think having a look at the corruption that happened during COVID, because processes were relaxed, emergency measures were put in place, procurement rules were relaxed. And I think I read somewhere the other day, Transparency International a while back said they had 1,500 reports of corruption that they were asked to investigate. That's globally, okay? Those are the ones that Transparency International, people made reports to them. Can you imagine the scale that corruption happened? We saw it in our own country. And I just, so for me, I guess it's, it's, it's really <laughs> appreciating the value that we bring and saying, yes, we may make your life slightly harder, but we play such a preventative and protective role. And I, yeah, I think that really brought that home for me. Yeah. And during the pandemic, the consequences were so different in certain ways, and particularly in a society that is trying to really move towards less corrupt model in certain ways to also have something like this happen at the same time. You're, I'm more worried about my survival, my family's survival, everything else I need. And some, for many reasons, sometimes that may come as a, corruption becomes as a secondary concern to survival for some people and how to balance that. And then how to straighten it out when it's not a crisis anymore is hard too. Absolutely. And also, Lisa, the element of trust is not there. So people, you don't trust your government. So one of the things we did is we set up this thing called a solidarity fund, right? Basically, any South African could donate to the Solidarity Fund. And it was saying, I've got a little bit of money. I've got $5 extra that I can spare. I'm putting this money into the Solidarity Fund. And that money was then given, allocated to people that had particular needs, procuring medical supplies. So it was basically like, think of like a family kitty. And any South African that can afford, put in. But so many people, so what they did is they got a lot of the millionaires and the billionaires here and they made big, here we're making donations, we're trustworthy, but, and it was the case of like, but I don't trust the government and I don't trust that my money's going to be spent properly. So I think that the whole thing was an exercise in trust. And as you say, Lisa, it was balancing that, that what do I need versus how do I protect myself? And it, that's exactly, it opens up the doorway for the worst of humanity to come out, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah, which 
kind of brings me to one of the other reasons that it's so good to have you here is because, and really you always push us and our team to be stronger. So if we have a project or something else, you always make us better in them. What do you think, how do you do such a good job of bringing things back to the key principles of doing right, making us stronger? And like you're talking right now, the solidarity fund and and balancing. So I think from my perspective, remembering the why. And that is the reason I do this job every day. It's the reason I believe in it. So on my way home every day, there is a beggar that is at the stock street every day. He has had his leg amputated and his arm amputated, and he stands on crutches and begs. That guy is there because our systems have failed. Because the money that should have been allocated for a wheelchair for him for proper urgent medical attention if he needed it, for some kind of social relief grant or assistance, for proper decent quality housing, water, electricity, nutrition. So much of that has been whittled away through corruption in this country. And please don't get me wrong, I I am the proudest South African you will ever meet. There is so much hope. There is so much wonderful There is so much to be proud of in this country and there are so many wonderful people and it's the hustle and it's the kindness and it's the community and it's the resilience of the people in this country that get us through. But when I drive past that guy every day, the systems have failed him and the systems have failed him primarily because of greed and corruption. And I think, so so I try and look at the bigger picture and remember that there's consequences. If I do that, if I pay a bribe or if I'm involved in something illegal, what is the consequence of that? And that's where I derive my passion from. And maybe it is, it's, it probably has a lot to do with my bringing my background and my exposure to so much poverty and maladministration that I feel so passionately about the work that we do. One of the things as a non-South African that seems just so exceptional to me about the country is your ability to keep trying to push forward and do better, even when challenges. There's something very inspiring. And there is no question I can tell any of our listeners, Sarah is probably the proudest South African person from South Africa that I know pretty much. There's no question that the what we call in the U.S. a chamber of commerce has nothing on her on that. But you are also it also impacted you so significantly. And I guess one of the things you've talked a lot, and especially this particular story about your day, do you think it's the responsibility of our teams to be the conscience of an organization? It, should we be? Are we and should we be? It's a two-part question. So that's a, yeah. So it's an interesting question, Lisa. So my answer, and I don't know if you'll expect this or not, but my answer is actually no. I don't think that we, I don't think that we are the conscience. I think definitely we should be the conscience, but I think everyone working in an organization is the conscience. They are the heartbeat of the organization. So I'll give you a perfect example. When I was relocating to South Africa, Pearson assisted me with my, my formal relocation and they offered me some money for temporary accommodation. So it was a, I I can't remember how it was, but it was like a cash sum. So I'll make this up. Give you $1,000 for accommodation for a month. Do you know how many people suggested to me that what I do is stay with my husband's folks and ask them to make out an invoice to Pearson, (laughs) his name is Minot, Minot BNB, and get them, get Pearson to pay them the money and give the money to us. 
Now, that to me is a moral choice that you have to make in that moment. Yeah. Compliance would never have known that Minot B&B is Duncan's folks. They wouldn't have known that. That would have been something that I knew and that Duncan knew. But fundamentally, it's wrong. And so I think our role, certainly in compliance, is basically to put, and needless to say, guys, I just want to be clear, I didn't do it. No, <laughs> but, that would never again. <laughs> but compliance puts a scaffolding in place that gives people the safety and the structure and the limits and confines within which to operate. So we do that by our policies, we do that by our procedures. We help them by investigating potential risks, and then we advise and guide them to make the right decisions. But each person that works at a company is the conscience and is responsible morally for the decisions that we make. We're like the parents. We provide an, a, like a, a structure, a safe scaffolding within which they know that they can operate. And they have the freedom to move in there because there's boundaries in place. And I think that's our role. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me because I think that everybody has to make their own decisions in that way. I think a couple of things about it. I think one, I think it's a problem when an organization says or expects their ethics and compliance people to be the ones who are the conscience, because I think everyone should. If you have a part of your responsibility, particularly as a senior leader, is to do the right thing and to model that, not just to say, oh, look at the compliance people. Like it's not, but there are others out there who think like that is part, I mean, there is to some degree part of our role. I believe that our role is to help tell them, like you said, what the scaffolding is and also to assess the risk within there to say, look, you can go walk out on that beam, but you may fall and you may not. It may cause you particular damage. The company may not. You may. You have to accept that risk. We're not going to tell you you can't do that. I'd say it's not a great idea to go that far, but the risk there. There's all those lines. I think that's part of what we do. But I don't. I also cringe when people think like we're supposed to be like the. You should be telling everybody exactly how to be a good good company or good person. And in your role, which we've talked a little bit about, but Sarah has really as you built essentially our entire due diligence program. How do you think due diligence is a key component or impacts this? So I think, Lisa, there's a few ways. One, it's great because it just helps us to understand our business better. One of the things is that we do a lot of is we ask questions of people about their proposed relation, business relationships, and it gets them thinking. It gets them thinking about what they're really doing, why they need that third party, how they're going to interact with them, whether the way they're paying them and how they're operating with them and where they're operating with them makes sense and is wise and responsible, commercially viable, and is not going to cause a great risk to the company. I also love the fact that I often have people just reaching out to me for help, saying, hi, Sarah, I'm not sure about these guys. I haven't heard good things, and I'm just wondering, can you help me? And it's an absolute pleasure to be that person that can have has access to tools and an ability just to offer that guidance as I'll go back to that scaffolding to say, this is what we can tell you, this is what we found, and this is what we think you should do. And again, just to say it's parameters within which to work and then letting them know when we have concerns about a third party and think about it again, like a parent with a, with, with a teenage child. All of us can remember our parents had friends that they didn't like. Think about that like a third party. Yeah. Your parents may have said, I don't like this person, they, if you want to play with them, they have to come for a play date at our house. I don't want you going to their house. Or they're not, you're not getting in the car with them or you're not going on a weekend away trip with them. So it's those parameters to say, look, this is risky. This is how you need to interact with them. 
Um, and I think it gives the business confidence. I actually think it gives the business confidence because they feel safe in that relationship, knowing the risks, understanding what they are, understanding the way they need to do things, and then operating within those confines. That's the part I really enjoy about due diligence and the value I think it can bring to an organization. Yeah, I like that. It's also the other thing that always makes me happy, similar to what you're saying, is if somebody reaches out before they go jump off the beam and say, I was thinking of doing this afternoon, what do you think about this? And it's like, let's talk about it for a little while. And it's, you know what? I'm really happy that we've worked and what you're talking about built enough trust that you'll have this discussion with me as part of what you're doing, as opposed to jumping and then us figuring out how to fix the problem afterwards. It's that building of trust that it sometimes initially seems like a hassle to some people. But when you get to that point, you're like, okay, we've broken through. You, you understand I want you to do well and vice versa. So I think that part always makes my day. Or when you get like an email from somebody who's just started, who asks a question that you're like, wait a minute, they're thinking about these things on their third day at Pearson. Wonderful. And they've emailed the legal team to ask, I volunteer for some awesome organization. Is this a conflict of interest? I just want yeah. to double check it. Keep doing it and join yeah. our team. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that's wonderful. And that's the conscience that we're talking about, the conscience of people. Yeah. It always uh, warms know, my heart. Um, yeah. So I'm going to go back to one other thing, to back to the pride in South Africa. And that and then is kind of my last kind of topic generally, which is two points. One, if there's something I'll start with, we're in a time of political upheaval in the U.S. We're in a time where we've got racial divisions that are more and more pronounced and other things. In South Africa, as you've been working over the years to come out of such a history of oppression and doing some pretty amazing things, I know from my experience there, what do you think that we could learn in the U.S. right now in the time we're in from South Africa? So Lisa, this is a tough, this is a really tough question to answer because I can't pretend for a minute that I know what it's like to be an American, what it feels like to be living through what you're living through. So I can just speak from my perspective as a South African. And I think our country carries a, a huge deal of pain from the past. And we're still dealing with a lot of those consequences. We still deal, as I've mentioned, with huge amounts of inequality. And the inequality is, I don't want to use this word systematic, but during apartheid, we had black and white peoples forcibly separated and moved into different areas. And black people were moved into areas that had out of economic hubs with inadequate access to basic essential services. The education systems were not, were not good. And so the problem is it's cyclical, isn't it? Because if you're raised... In, a, in, a, in what we call a township or a squatter camp, so very informal dwellings, you receive a, a, an extremely substandard education. You then have children. You aren't educated yourself. What hope do those children have? So we're dealing with a, a deeply, in fact, I think South Africa right now is probably the most unequal country in the world in terms of the division of wealth in this country. We have a long way to go. There's, and, there, and like I said, there's a huge amount of pain. So some of the things in the system that we did, at least at the start of democracy, is 
basically create a set of laws and what we call like chapter nine institutions to deal with to deal with racism, to deal with to basically to strengthen and fortify our democracy. So we obviously drafted a fantastic constitution, and I, I think that uh, I don't even think I've been biased. Like I think it's it's recognised as one of the most progressive constitutions in the world, probably because it's fairly new too. But we then have these chapter nine institutions. So we've got a public protector, we've got a human rights commission, we've got a commission to protect religious, cultural, linguistic communities. We have a gender equality commission, an auditor general to check on everyone an electoral commission to monitor elections. And you may have some of the institutions in the States, but at least those were the, the sort of the formal structures that we set up. We also have had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission where we voiced and spoke with and investigated and dealt with the hurt and the pain in, in an open and honest and deeply painful way. But it gave the nation an opportunity to vocalise and the, their experiences and sense I don't think they ever got closure, but it's some form of closure. And we've obviously put in place laws to deal with people that were illegally dispossessed of their land. But then we've also introduced, and this is where corruption comes in, and I think this is one of our, our biggest downfalls, is we introduced broad-based Black economic empowerment legislation. The law itself is phenomenal. It is the most wonderfully, the idea behind it is just wonderful. So what it is saying, we have, as I mentioned, economically disadvantaged and disempowered people, right? Who are black, okay? What we want to do is we want to give them opportunities. So as a company, you get a score based on how much you empower and uplift black people. And it's quite clever. So basically, you obviously get points for management, you'll get points for, so points for how many black people are in management, points for how many black employees you have, points for how many black people own the company, and then how much you invest or donate in the, in the communities and uplift other small businesses. Um, and then obviously, if you work with other companies with good scores, you get points for working with other. So the idea is that eventually everyone's aiming. So Pearson is, for example, is a level one with the highest we can be, with the, the best that we can be in terms of that score. The problem with it is that it's been so open to abuse. Right. And I think people should Google this word tenderpreneur. So I don't know if you've, if, you've, if you've heard of it outside of South Africa. But basically, they've been abused by people because what they've done is either fronting. So basically, it's a farce. It's artificial. So they've put Black people's names on papers to get points, but there's absolutely zero intention behind it. Of yeah. It works. And so it, it, has, it hasn't done a huge amount, I don't, in my opinion, certainly looking around, to really uplift and empower the most unequal and most disadvantaged people in our country. And that is something that we still have to address. But Lisa, just sorry, my, my closing thoughts on this, I think talking about it openly is something that we need to do. I laugh about it because Duncan, my husband, says to me, he went to diversity training so many times in the UK because in South Africa, it's very normal and acceptable to talk about black, white, pink, purple, green. We talk, we call the rainbow nation because we openly talk about race. We openly talk about our issues and um, we use humor a lot and, and it's a way of dealing with pain but we find the light we find the funniness we make jokes so I guess it's being conversational it's being humorous and and then the other thing is my hope Lisa my deep hope is that as generations grow I've got a lot of hope in our younger generation I think they are fantastic I think they're asking the right questions I think they're speaking about the right things so I can give you two examples that 
<laughs> like I remember being in an older generation very close to me in their house when I was younger and something needed to be repaired and a black man and a white man walked in together to repair the stove the black man sorry the white man was allowed in the black man came inside and reached out his arm to touch the couch because the front door was the entrance and then there was the couch mm-hmm. and this person said don't you touch my couch and I remember thinking I don't understand what's going on why is this person being they're not allowed to touch the furniture and I said to this person afterwards like what was the issue and they said because they're black okay the other example I've got is my husband he his folks used to own a farm and this is like back in the day and they had farm workers Sorry, not his parents didn't own the farm at the time that this happened. There were farmers. So people that lived on the farm, they worked on the farm. They lived there. And there were children, black children. And I remember Duncan saying he would be allowed to watch television inside the farmhouse. The black children had to sit outside the house and watch through the windows. Doesn't that bring tears to your eyes? Like, it's, it makes me emotional now. I can't believe it. And so, sorry. <laughs> that's the kind of pain that we deal with here. And I think it's amazing though, that you're dealing with it openly because we've had in the U S there've been histories of segregation. There are other things I'm fearing that the lack of openness and talking about some of the past. And even when it comes to religion or women's rights, I think the fact that we don't talk about, some people don't talk about it or see it in the same way. Germany teaches about the Holocaust. It is excruciatingly painful for every German friend of mine, but they do that. In South Africa, talking about that and saying, okay, and I'm going to just pull it full circle as we close up. You're a new mom. That's not going to happen. Is that wouldn't happen. Izzy's friend would we be sitting inside watching TV together. Exactly. And that's my point. Generations. Please, God, let us. And also, Lisa, just to pause and say, we have come a long way. Right. We have come a long way. And there's work to do, and we've got to do it. I think that's probably accurate for all of us and everything that we're trying to do. But before we close out, just thank you, Sarah. Thank you for all you do for the bigger picture and for ethics and compliance as a whole. And on behalf of Mary and me and the Compliance Podcast Network, thanks so much for listening to Great Women in Compliance. Thank you for having me, Lisa. What a pleasure and a joy it is to have you as a colleague and a friend and an advisor. And yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review. 